0: Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brugic, and I'm joined today with Dr. Justin Schweitzer, where we're going to be discussing just because it's microinvasive doesn't mean it should be low on the totem pole in terms of glaucoma care today on the OI Show. Dr. Justin Schweitzer. Thank you for joining us again on the Optometric Insights Show. Truly appreciate you here. For those that may not necessarily have familiarity with you or your practice
1: setting, give us a little bit of a background on yourself, Justin. Uh, You bet. First of all, thanks for having me. An honor again to be here. I love being a repeat uh, attendee or being uh, invited back. So thanks for that, number one. Uh, I practice uh, at a it's an ODMD collaborative care practice in in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, I I work alongside a glaucoma trained cornea trained um, surgeon, and my role really is to kind of manage our clinic. We we my partner OD Mitch uh, box see patients day to day. We we're we're preparing patients for cataract surgery, glaucoma surgeries, uh, refractive surgeries, corneal disease, those types of things, uh, so that he can spend his time in the operating room. And that's really kind of the role. And I'm, I love what I get to do on a daily basis. And Justin, you've you've been firsthand
0: seeing some of the massive advancements that we're seeing in the glaucoma space in particular. We We've known the challenges for decades. Ever since I graduated, there's always this notion of compliance with glaucoma drops. That's the first thing. And we also know too, the more drops we put somebody on or the more complicated the regimen in is the less likely they are to follow this regimen. And we're in an era now where we can be providing or referring appropriately for care with uh, MIG surgeries. Tell us a little bit about your role in the MIG surgeries currently in the practice and really what our role just in general in optometry should be around, around the MIGs and how we should or shouldn't be referring for those.
1: You're exactly right. I mean, we are at a spot now where we need to think about treating glaucoma more from a physician-driven standpoint or an interventional glaucoma standpoint. And really what that means is intervening earlier in the disease process with procedures that are still safe, you know, still effective, but not necessarily a tube shunt or a trab and, and MIGS really falls into that. And we're still kind of in the infancy of MIGS when you think about it. It really got introduced around the year 2012. And so we're all still learning a lot about them and there's new procedures that come onto the market. Uh, but when I first started, mele was in, in 2012 with, with Vance Thompson Vision and John. And that's when the first stent really came on to the market. And since that time, we now have a handful of MIGS procedures. And I do think it's important that optometrists make sure they understand or are aware of the different MIGS procedures because these types of patients that have glaucoma, they're going to come back to us. They're going to be in our chairs. Uh, we're going to be doing the the primary glaucoma care for them. And MIGS procedures aren't going away and surgeons are going to keep using them. And we need to be aware of you know, how do they work? Where should they be in the anatomy of the eye? And, and so my role really is to educate not only optometrists in my community on MIGS because I work alongside a glaucoma surgeon, but I also educate my patients on it. And, and I see those patients. And I make decisions around, okay, you'd be a perfect candidate for a, gla- a glaucoma procedure like cataract surgery plus a stent, or you'd be a perfect patient for a, for a goniotomy. Uh, and, and so those are the discussions that I have on a daily basis.
0: So Justin, with the MIGS procedures, tell us a little bit about, you know maybe not what's available now, but what we can expect over time here, because there's some really, really interesting research that's going on into understanding... The best places to place the migs within the anterior chamber in that trabeculum. So, tell us a little bit more about that research and help us understand where we are today and where we might be in the future.
1: It's an exciting area. You know, I, I, I'm careful with saying the holy grail of migs procedures, but I feel like some of this work that's being done with what we call aqueous angiography is is, is really fascinating, and uh, a lot of this is being done by a by a surgeon uh, in, in in California, uh, Alex Wong, uh, and you know, we've always thought that you know everyone's aqueous collector channels may be the same, and most mixed procedures are done nasally, and that's where we believe that most of the collector channels exist. and And that you know is being challenged a bit with his work. But even if there were the majority of collector channels there, what his work is showing is that there are certain areas, especially in glaucoma patients, where there may be aqueous flow that is more robust in certain quadrants and more dormant in other quadrants. And so what he's doing is he's doing aqueous angiography uh, during surgery. And there's some studies out there on this. So so, so Justin, is he actually injecting a dye into the
0: anterior chamber?
1: So yeah, so it's still a fairly, you know, we need it to be more non-invasive. So the work that he's doing is a little bit more invasive because it has to be done during- During
0: the time of the procedure.
1: Yep. At this point in time. So there's a dye being put in the eye during the time of the procedure. And then he's able to visualize with, you know, OCT technology, aqueous geography, mm-hmm. really where in those collector channels, is there more flow and where's there less flow? Mm-hmm. And they can take a targeted approach on where to do that particular MIGS procedure. That's pretty wild, Justin. So, so, so to, so to take a step
0: back here, injecting dye into the interior chamber seeing where it's flowing out and you can determine based on the technology that they've incorporated where it is and where it isn't how is that going to potentially influence where the migs are being placed and in addition to that what's what's known about that are there better places to place the migs devices than others depending on what the outflow is in certain areas of the interior chamber
1: it's a great question me you know when we think about visualizing it where to place it imagine an area that lights up when we think of a, 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 angiography in general if it lights up we know that there's 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 blood flow in this case we know that there's aqueous flow and so potentially what you would do and there's you know videos of of his that are out there you would place a stent or do a goniotomy in that area and you would get more flow to that area you know already that there is good aqueous flow to that area let's make more flow happen to that area. But the flip side is, per your question, what about the areas that are dormant where there's not a lot of aqueous that's flowing? Could you then stent or do a goniotomy or a procedure in that area to allow more flow of aqueous, which is exactly what he's doing as well. And so you'll see in some of his research that he's able to create more flow in areas where there's great aqueous flow. And he's able to create more aqueous flow in areas where there's no aqueous flow, which then would make those MIGS procedures potentially more effective.
0: That's wild, Justin. Through the literature, has there been any benefits to selecting one versus the other? Or is there a more strategic place to put it? Or is that
1: still are those things that they're still looking at? Yeah, those are definitely things that are still being looked at. So to give you the honest answer, I don't think we know 100%. I can give you my opinion. I, would I was going think- to say, Justin, yeah. and, and this might change in the next six months
0: when the when the data actually comes out, but what what's your gut telling you? Like, is there a place where you're saying, based on
1: what I'm seeing, this makes more sense to me? Yeah, I mean, my opinion would be that if there's an area that's dormant, And we can do a goniotomy there. We could place a stent there and get the amount of aqueous flow that I've seen in some of the the videos and some of the research that's being done already. That would seem to be the more efficacious way than an area that already has some flow. But again, when you think about a lot of these procedures, you know, they're taking up areas of the meshwork melee. So a goniotomy isn't just treating one clock hour. A lot of times Mm -hmm. it's treating three clock hours. Other procedures are treating large areas. And so why would you not attack both those things and probably even get a more efficacious result? That's great. Justin, I know that you know the, the beautiful
0: role that MIGs play is that they can ideally reduce somebody's dependency on so many medications because oftentimes these individuals are on multiple meds. And sometimes it just becomes... Difficult and tough to manage those things. So even taking a medication off or two medications off, or ideally all medications, that's the best case scenario, although sometimes we can't achieve that. Um, saying that though, there's got to be some statistics on you know what how much medications we can pull off of those patients. What does that look like, Justin, in your practice? And how much are you able to drop the amount of medications that these individuals are, in fact, using? Because I can only imagine that the ocular surface reaps the benefits of, or the rewards of not being constantly bombarded with as many medicines.
1: Uh, 100% agree with you on the bombardment. Medications are great. You and I use them every day for our glaucoma patients. They're not going away. Let's be clear about that. But the beauty is if you can reduce that dependence to a degree, that's really what we're trying to do. And you know, we've done some studies at our practice. You know, we did a study of about 460 patients. Uh, We did this, you know, quite a while ago, but we continue to follow these patients. And so we, I believe now have roughly eight year data on this patient set of about 460 patients or so. And pre-surgery, they underwent cataract surgery plus a stent at that time. And it was only one stent at that time. We dropped their medication burden from about one and a half topical glaucoma medications down to about a half. That was the average right now with time that number has crept up a little bit we know glaucoma is a marathon and we know that we're not curing patients so although we dropped them in that first year at about a half we've seen a steady creep up but what's interesting is we haven't seen it get all the way back up to a medication at half yet on average over an extended period of time
0: i enjoy the conversations with these individuals because again it it is a Different. It is a different conversation after the MIGS, in particular, if we can reduce one or hopefully all medications that the individual may be using, just because, again, the compliance is now off the table. All we're doing is metricizing what the efficacy is of the stent. We don't have to worry about what the drops are and are they using them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is, again, one of the biggest challenges in particular for mild to moderate glaucoma when you don't really have a lot of visual field affected because the individuals aren't really seeing the manifestation of the condition. They're going based on what we're sharing with them. With that said, Justin... I know that it, as involved as you are in glaucoma, give us a little bit of the updates on uh, glaucoma delivery or alternate glaucoma delivery of medications um, to the eye.
1: Yeah. Drug delivery in glaucoma is, is definitely an exciting arena. Uh, we have one, you know, on the market right now in in something called bimatoprost R or Doristo, which is, which is exciting. Uh, it's being utilized, you know, the, the, Advantage of it is it's a it's a medication we're used to, right? We're used to bimatoprost. We've, we've used it for a long time in a topical form. Uh, you know, maybe the disadvantage right now is we can only use it one time. You know, it, it, on, from an FDA indication standpoint, it can only implant it one time. But I would argue that that doesn't mean we still shouldn't think about it. Because as you mentioned, you know, ocular surface disease, Even giving these patients a break for four months, six months, a year, maybe even two years, which some of the data supports around this particular implant, maybe a reason to do it to just give them a a drop holiday. But what's even more exciting is what's probably coming down the pipeline is we have some other drug delivery devices that appear that they're going to, based on the data, last longer. Uh, There's a device called iDose that's coming uh, very soon. Um, And this particular implant, it's a surgical procedure. So the beauty of the Durist implant is it can be done at the slip map. This particular procedure right now likely will have to be done in a surgery setting with a clear corneal incision, but the data around it shows that a lot of these patients may get, you know, three years of adequate IOP oh. lowering from it. And so an extended period of time of IOP lowering uh, is, is a welcomed addition. And optometrics can still play a role in this, right? We can make the appropriate referral, get this particular implant, implanted. patient comes back to us. We're managing their glaucoma still. We're not having to worry about the compliance, all the drop issues that we may run into.
0: That's great, Justin. It's always uh, encouraging to talk to somebody like you, being as on the forefront of the research and the contemporary information around glaucoma because it is changing fast. And although you know we have our ways to manage and monitor it, the way that we're managing it is changing so fast as well too. And I think it's all to the betterment of the patient and ultimately patient outcomes, Justin. Thank you for being on today and taking time out of your busy schedule to be here with us. Thanks so much. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of the OI Show.